From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll have an update on the latest research and treatment news, including the debate over whether to treat DCIS or ductal carcinoma in situ. The potential exists for this to become an invasive cancer if not treated. We don't know which of the ductal carcinoma in situ will become the one that has the potential to spread to elsewhere in the body. Also on the program, by age 80, half of all Americans either have a cataract or have had cataract surgery. We'll learn more about this common eye problem. And constipation, usually a temporary problem, but for some it's a sign of something more serious. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And one of the breast health topics that's gotten quite a bit of attention in recent months is ductal carcinoma in situ. And that just is called DCIS. That's right. That's That makes a little bit more sense to me. DCIS is easier yeah. to say, that's right. for sure. <laughs> DCIS is the presence of abnormal cells inside the milk ducts of the breast. DCIS is currently considered the earliest form of breast cancer, stage Zero. Despite its non-invasive characteristics, each year, most of the approximately 60,000 women diagnosed with DCIS in the U.S. elect to have surgery to remove it. We're now learning that surgery, either lumpectomy or mastectomy, may not change survival rates. According to a study published this summer, women with DCIS, regardless of the treatment that they received, had close to the same likelihood of dying of breast cancer as did women in the general population. Here to talk about the study and the risks of DCIS is Dr. Sandhya Pruthi. Dr. Pruthi evaluates and treats women in the breast diagnostic clinic here at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Pruthi. Thank you. Yes, nice to see you. So a lot of interest in this topic, DCIS, and the name would suggest that it that it is cancer. Carcinoma, to me, means cancer. But now the people who are studying this say maybe it's really not. Well, it is actually a cancer, um, but it is a early cancer, and you said it nicely. It's a non-invasive cancer, which means that it was caught in the spectrum of what a cancer can do before it had invaded. The problem is it is still the potential exists for this to become an invasive cancer if not treated. And that's what um, is... Uh, created some controversy is that we don't know which of the ductal carcinoma in situ when given when a patient is given that diagnosis will become the one that has the potential to spread and leave the breast and then potentially spread to elsewhere in the body. So what we're talking about then is the treatment of the DCIS. The best practice today is to remove it. You want to remove the area that has the potential to spread. The next step is how do you manage this? Is there a role for radiation, a mastectomy, or having someone, after having it removed, have no further radiation? And the fourth option is to take an anti-estrogen, which is a hormonal treatment. And a lot of this decision as to which one of those four pathways one takes is dependent, again, on the biology of the DCIS. We want to know if it's a high-grade or a low-grade. We want to know if it's estrogen-feeding or non-estrogen-feeding. And these are um, critical 
factors that a physician takes into account and looks at that to decide which is the kind of DCIS that we're going to want to be more aggressive in the treatment options. We also know that we have to look at the patient. We have to look at the patient's perspective from their other comorbidities. And if we're going to talk about additional treatment, how would that impact a patient? Now, if somebody's Yeah, sorry, comorbidities, other health problems. Exactly, other health problems, has a cardiac history or a problem with their lungs or um, has multiple issues going on where to put them to a, a radiation may be a complicating factor to their lung or their underlying heart. So you have to think of those. Things in that perspective, but it is a cancer, and we know that. We also know it has the potential. What we don't know today, and that's where the research has to be better defined, is which of these DCISs are the kind that will not become invasive and become a problem in a woman's lifetime and can cause death when a cancer is invasive. So it's just barely cancer, it sounds like. I mean, it's it's early stage cancer, but you do want to get rid of it because some of these can be become invasive cancers and actually spread and take a woman's life. Absolutely. But some of them are not. And we're learning when it comes to a prostate polyp or um, in the thyroid, you know, some of these things that maybe if we just leave them, uh, they won't end up ultimately causing death. It's just something that you live with and it doesn't cause you any harm. And that's where we want to be one day with DCIS and with um, the research being done and understanding the biology and the factors that make one type of DCIS more likely to have the potential to invade. We need to be there. But until then, watchful waiting is um, a little worrisome for a lot of providers, and um, we don't want to do that. We do want to excise it, then discuss the next level of treatment that I described. So if you, if a woman has DCIS, how do you detect it? If these are so early and presumably small, do they show up on a mammogram? Absolutely. That's actually what has happened. Because of screening mammography, we've seen a larger number of DCIS cases detected, and about 50,000 a year are coming are being diagnosed because of a screening mammogram where microcalcifications, which are white little specks on a mammogram that have a different appearance in that they have irregular or, or number or size to them that becomes a enough of a concern to the radiologist and makes that recommendation that based on this type of microcalcifications where a biopsy would be performed, then based on the finding at the biopsy is only when you learn that is it DCIS or it could have been invasive cancer. So a biopsy is the only way to make the diagnosis from the tissue. And if it is DCIS, and do you have a surgeon take it out, and they've got reasonable margins all the way around it, whether it's low grade or a high grade, is that pretty much into the story? I mean, do they need a treatment in addition to that? Well, and this is where the treatment would be, in the standard has been to give them either radiation, or following that, some women will say, I would rather have a mastectomy because they don't want the radiation option. And those have been the two standard treatments. Now the third has been, instead of giving them radiation, could that, following that lumpectomy, they have been able to receive the hormonal treatment, the anti-estrogen, like tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. And then there's that fourth now that has come up. If it is the low grade and it's caught very early and it's a small area based on the medical condition of that patient, could we then leave it and not do anything further? That is a very small percent of patients who fall in that group. And I suppose you don't have a a firm answer yet. 
Absolutely, we don't. We do still have to have that conversation on here's the standard treatment, here are the risks and benefits of the different treatments, and individualize it to your patient. Do you think that the word carcinoma should be taken out of DCIS? Should it be renamed, given a different name? That has been discussed in the pathology world, and right now um, it's pretty well uh, the the researchers, the, the clinicians still very feel very strongly that the word carcinoma should stay there because of its tendency to become an invasive cancer if, again, depending on the features of what kind of DCIS one has. How often do women say to you, what would you do if it were your breast? Um, actually, not that much. I, really? I see a lot of women, oh, wow. um, and I don't get asked that. Um, Is that right? I, I am surprised. Um, and, and they'll say, look, I don't think you can answer it because it's not you. Um, what they really want is to have all the information laid out to them in a way that they can understand. And um, we've done some really nice work in the breast clinic where we use visuals and pictures to help patients see what it means to be contained within a duct from one that has the ability to invade. And I think when um, you take the next step in educating patients using using graphic um, or uh, visuals, you can really help them understand it. And, and that's really where you have to be. That's pretty much everything you wanted to know about it. ductal carcinoma in situ, huh? Yeah. Confusing subject, and you're learning more about it, and you've uh, there's certainly options for any woman with that diagnosis. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we're going to take a broader look at breast cancer, including advances in research, diagnosis, and treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we are back with Mayo Clinic Breast Cancer Specialist, Dr. Sandy Pruthi, to talk about not just DCIS, but breast cancer in general. Dr. Sandy Pruthi, this is still the disease that women fear more than any other. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What's the message you want to get out there to the women of America? The, the most important message is to know your own breast. Um, and if you know something is different and, and a, uh, a lump is being felt or there's an abnormality in the skin or the nipple discharge, these are symptoms that need to be promptly evaluated. And I think we forget that the importance of a change on your breast exam can sometimes be the earliest finding. The, the second most and, and goes what is what is being discussed a lot is the role of screening mammography. And women are still being advised to get screening mammograms because of its importance in early detection and reducing death from breast cancer. It is the only test that's been shown to reduce death. The, the controversy is around the, the age at which to start screening mammography and the frequency of the mammogram. So I think that uh, unless the party line, Mayo Clinic party line hasn't changed, you recommend that most women start at age 40. Is that correct? Absolutely, and that is a guideline that the American Cancer Society, the National Comprehensive Care Network, these are well-established organizations that and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommend women screen at age 40 and yearly. Denial for whether you're a man or a woman is a problem. If you think there's potentially something wrong or different with your breast, you need to go in and have it checked. Absolutely. Even if your mammogram is normal, 
And even if your mammogram was normal six months ago, an abnormality or change on your breast exam needs to be evaluated. And what are some of those things that patients say this is different than six months ago, or I just noticed this this morning in the shower? What are some of those things? So they might feel a lump, and it'll feel like a like a pebble or a stone. They might feel like their breast has some thickening, like there's some asymmetry. One area feels a little more prominent than the surrounding tissue. These are the most common things that women will describe. Rare, but can happen is if they notice a rash or a change in the skin appear, color of the skin in one part of their breast. So once a, a woman comes in and you have made the diagnosis of uh, breast cancer, tell us about the conversation you have with them. And I know that you have a computerized educational tool that's been extremely helpful, not only to the physicians, but to especially for the patients. Right. So it, the discussion is about um, options. What their options are for early-stage breast cancer is a lumpectomy with radiation versus a mastectomy. And women want to know the the what we call the pros and cons of each of the procedures. The fact that both procedures are equivalent when it comes to reducing a cancer recurring in the breast. And Say that again. Both procedures are equivalent. So whether you have your breast removed or you have a lumpectomy and radiation, your chances of recurrence and your chances of dying of this disease are the same. For stage to stage for the breast cancer, yes, they are the same. And I think that's important when a woman says, if I had this caught early and I could save my breast, I'm going to do just as well if I do a lumpectomy and radiation as a woman who's had a mastectomy, and the answer is yes. And the beauty about an educational tool, and, and you highlighted the computerized one, is we were able to illustrate using video and graphics to show the patients the different options and what it looked like to have a lumpectomy and radiation and what a, a mastectomy and reconstruction into. But we took it a step further, and we're now um, delivering this content on an iPad. And we allow patients to take the iPad home on loan with the content on lumpectomy, mastectomy, radiation, all in their at their fingertips to use when they're ready to read it at their own time and pace. And I've been impressed with how many patients have said having this information at their fingertips that's trusted Mayo knowledge and their home to share with their families. And often they would have a, a spouse or a family member say, what did the doctor tell you? And it is not uncommon for women to say, I can't remember all the details. And now they have this iPad where the algorithm is set up in the same way I would have done in the office with the touch of a button. Because family history is such an important piece when it comes to your your risk of getting breast cancer, how has individualized medicine or looking at the genetics, how has that changed what you do? So, and that's a great question because knowing if somebody is a carrier of a breast cancer gene, we now are able to be more precise in some of the chemotherapy regimens that we would give to a BRCA carrier, which is breast cancer gene positive, and that can really revolutionize how the treatment changes for someone if they're a carrier of the gene. You know, the the whole field of genetics is changing so rapidly. Uh, I think it's confusing for a lot of people, and, and the question that I have, and I think a lot of women are asking is, who ought to be tested for a breast cancer uh, gene, and, and who should doesn't need to worry about it. The, the way I tell my patients, if you know you've got multiple family members under the age of 50 affected with a breast cancer, an ovarian cancer, colon cancer, or prostate cancer, 
And if somebody has had a male in their family with breast cancer or a um, family member who had cancer in both breasts, these are what we call red flags for a potential genetic mutation. And then they come in and they have the test and let's uh, tell us what happens if it's positive. Tell us what happens if it's negative. So we do have our patients who we feel have a potential for having a hereditary mutation meet with a genetic counselor. The genetic counselor is a critical player here in counseling the patient about what would you do if you had this information on this test and then um, what would you do if the test was negative and then how would you share this information with your family members. It's not just to have a a genetic test is no longer just a check on a piece of paper it there's some counseling that it entails and then once you know if somebody carries the gene then the decision is a higher risk for um, a second cancer in their lifetime or an ovarian cancer and so the surgical management will be altered by that type of knowledge about the cancer gene do you uh, then recommend that they have more frequent mammograms their daughters start mammography earlier or how do you I mean, let's assume she's got the gene. It's positive. Uh, She has a family history. She doesn't have breast cancer. Uh, What happens next? What's different between that person and one who doesn't have the positive? So because the lifetime risk for this individual who carries the mutation can be anywhere from 40 to 80 percent, that's significant enough that these women need what we call more intensive surveillance. And more than just uh, a screening mammogram every year now, they need a breast MRI. Mm-hmm. And and that um, is because the MRI has been shown to be very sensitive in detecting cancers earlier on uh, on the breast because of a breast cancer gene. And so that becomes part of the surveillance on an annual basis for these patients. Did I hear you say that if you're BRCA positive, your risk of getting breast or ovarian cancer during your lifetime is somewhere between 40 and 80 percent? For the breast cancer, it's 40 to 80 percent. For ovarian cancer, it'd be anywhere between 20 to 40 percent. Wow. Because this is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, let's, yeah, let's talk about the, prevention. We prevention. don't want yeah. anybody to have to come see you. So what do you do to prevent this disease? And it's amazing. There's some good evidence that prevention um, really makes a difference in breast cancer. And a lot of people have a hard time... Um, getting their grasp around that and I'll tell them watch what you do when it comes to alcohol use. Drinking one or less drink per day has been shown to decrease breast cancer risk. Um, Exercise and maintaining a healthy weight. If you put on weight after menopause you're at higher risk for breast cancer. These are things that um, are in one's control, and I advise patients to take a a healthy approach to their lifestyle and that we can prevent breast cancer. And then to end on that, there are medications that are approved to prevent breast cancer when somebody's at high risk, and these medications are options you should be talking to your doctor about. All right, so the bottom line is know your breasts, get your mammograms, keep your weight down, don't drink too much. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Dr. Pruthi. We appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, cataracts are a common eye problem that come with age. We'll have the latest on cataract treatment. And constipation usually isn't something to see your doctor about. Find out when it is. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. How much running does it take to improve your health? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Well, you don't have to put in as many miles as you might think. 
New research shows if you run six miles a week, you can add three to six years on your life. Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialist Dr. Edward Laskowski says... If you get out there and get moving, um, you're going to benefit your body, your heart and lung system, as well as protection from certain cancers. The symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, sleepless nights, mood swings, and more. A Mayo Clinic study shows those symptoms can be more severe for women who are abused. Here's Dr. Stephanie Fabian. So it's common, it's clearly underreported, and it has a significant impact on health, and not just physical health, but emotional health. Dr. Fabian says women should report abuse to their health care provider, who can then help them develop a safety plan and find emotional support. So let's keep talking about relationships and cell phones. Have you ever felt snubbed or rather fubbed by your partner? Fubbing means to snub or pay more attention to your phone than to somebody else. Well, Baylor University research shows fubbing can undermine romantic relationships and lead to depression. It's something to think about when you reach for your phone in front of your partner. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A cataract, the clouding of the normally clear lens of your eye. And it can leave you feeling as though you're looking out through a frosty or a fogged up window. And as they progress, cataracts can make it difficult to read, to drive a car, especially at night, or to see the expressions on people's faces. Cataracts are pretty common and they increase with age. In fact, by age 80, more than half of all Americans either have a cataract or they've had cataract surgery. Here to talk about cataracts and how they're treated is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bachry. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tracy and Tom. Good to see you. So it, it is pretty easy to understand if you think of it as a clouding of the lens of the eye and the lens of the eye being somewhat akin to the, the lens of a camera. It's exactly that. Um, you're born with a clear lens in most cases. And um, as you age, or due to uh, some other factors, the lens becomes gradually more and more cloudy. And that is what we call a cataract. Do we know why that happens? The number one cause is aging. And, that causes um, a lot of bad things, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems to make sense. You stick around long enough, you're going to have a cataract. <laughs> but the good news is, is that cataracts develop very slowly. So even though you may have a cataract, really we're only talking about a gradation of cloudiness. And and does everybody eventually end up having cataracts if you can live long enough? Even people who have got great eyesight when they're 90 years old and there's no cataracts, if they could live to be 120, would they have cataracts? Yes. If you define cataract as clouding of the lens, um, yes, everybody will get a cataract. The question is, Will everybody get a cataract that's significant enough to affect their vision? Do we know why some people have a cataract bad enough to affect their uh, vision and some people don't? Yes, um, there are a number of risk factors that can actually accelerate cataract progression. So what you find is that patients who smoke, uh, patients who are diabetic, um, patients who eat um, high-fat diet, um, an unhealthy diet or have a, um, a less than healthy lifestyle are more likely to have cataract progression. And do they develop at the same time? I mean, do both eyes get them at the same rate? Generally, yes, most eyes develop them at the same rate. Now, there are exceptions. So if you were hit in the eye by something, then that's a traumatic cataract that would be in just the one eye. 
What about uh, if you've had LASIK surgery, uh, vision correction surgery? Did that increase your risk of, of having a cataract? We don't really think so. Well, that's good news, huh? Mm-hmm. So uh, do you see people who have a cataract in one eye and the other eye is completely normal? Usually there would be a reason for that. Oh, like if I saw that, them. I would be highly suspicious, and I would ask a lot more questions. What about the sun? Does that have anything to do with it? Yes, yeah, so UV light has been shown to accelerate uh, cataracts as well. So that's another risk factor, as long as well as age, genetics, family history, correct? Uh, diet, you don't, a diet has something to do with it. Uh, smoking and diabetes. And also steroids. Steroids. Um, people who um, have had a history of uh, steroid eye drops or steroid implants in the eye for one reason or another, um, even those who have been on oral steroids, uh, sometimes even steroid creams that people might not think about, um, that can accelerate cataract progression. Sorry, I guess kind of after steroid implants, what, what do you mean there? Well, there are certain eye conditions um, such as um, swelling in the retina from diabetes that respond nicely to steroid implants. Oh, okay. Go back to the genetic component one moment. And if uh, someone in your family had cataracts, and mostly, like you said, it's age-related more, if you've got a family history of cataracts, do you tend to develop them earlier in your life? Or is there a certain time when somebody usually says, oh, yeah, it's time to get the cataract check done, and there they are? So it depends on what kind of, of cataract. Certainly there are um, congenital conditions um, that, that can be passed uh, down. But also, you know, family history may not necessarily be genetic. It may be a combination of, you know, where you live, your sun exposure, uh, you know, your diet, your lifestyle, etc. All right, we know what it is. We know what the risk factors are. How do you make the, the diagnosis? And what when patients come in to see you have a cataract, what are they usually complaining of? So usually patients complain of a generalized blur. They say that it becomes harder to read. Um, patients can also complain of difficulty during night driving, um, in particular glare and halos. And for many people, they just have to stop driving until it's taken care of. Hmm. And glare, you, uh, difficulty driving at night, uh, you said glaring glare. and halos, Yes. and uh, blurred vision. Yes. Now, there are uh, other symptoms which are rarer, such as double vision in one eye, for example. Um, and so what do you do then when it's time to, all right, you have cataracts, you've stopped driving a year ago at night, and now you're starting to have trouble reading, and it's finally time to get them taken care of. How do you help a patient? Oh, but how do you find out they have them? How do you know for sure? Well, the way we find out is by examine, examining the eye under um, a machine called the slit lamp, and that really will, will show us the cataract. Um, but then we have a discussion with the patient about when they would like to have it removed. So patients often ask me, is my cataract ripe yet? There's a notion that it has to be ripe. <laughs> and what do they mean by that? Bad enough? Is that what they mean? Sale, huh? so, so yes, bad enough. I mean, surgery, there are risks and there are benefits, and you want to do it just at the right time. And that would be? So when it's affecting um, the patient's vision, reading, driving, and their daily activities, um, that would be the right time. And when you, when you do take it out, you actually take out the lens, right? Uh, and it used to be that you didn't put anything back in there, right? And that's why people used to wear Coke bottle bottom glasses. 
And now you actually put a new lens in there, right? That not only, uh, that can also correct for any visual acuity problem they had beforehand. Yes, so since the 1980s, um, we have had what we call intraocular lenses approved by the FDA. And, um, you know, we consider the crystalline lens, the natural lens of the eye, a little bit like an M&M. So we peel back the, um, the front cover of the M&M, we take out the chocolate or the peanut, <laughs> and then we leave in um, the... Um, the back uh, the cover, yeah. the back coating. <laughs> and so then once we've done that, we have a nice um, space that we can insert the intraocular lens. And the good thing is, is that now lenses are foldable and they can be inserted via small incisions. So that really um, makes the recovery easier on the patient. I have to tell you, the people that I know that are getting to the age where they're getting their cataracts taken care of make it seem like it's a pretty easy thing to do. They uh, they're not too concerned about it, and they can't believe how quickly they recover from it. So it must have you must have come a long way in helping people to remove that cataract. Yes. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, cataract surgery. Um, can have a lot of complications, but our surgeons are extremely well trained. It takes many years to train to do a, a cataract procedure. And, you know, my colleagues in other specialties are still amazed that it takes three years at least to even learn how to do a cataract in training. Um, so, um, so it's, uh, it's actually extremely difficult, but we have come a long, long way in making the procedure um, safer. Good to know. And most everybody here who does cataract surgery has done a lot of them, right? Exactly. That's critical, isn't it? Exactly. Dr. Sophie Bakri, ophthalmologist, eye specialist at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Great to have you on the program again. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we've all had it at one time or another. For most of us, constipation is just an occasional problem, but for some, it can be a sign of a more serious medical issue. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, this is one of those health questions that... No matter how many people you ask, you're not likely to get a straight or a definitive answer. The question is, what is constipation? Well, that shouldn't come as a surprise because people generally have a very personal view, Tom, of just what <laughs> constitutes regularity. And because each of us is different, how frequently we have a bowel movement depends on a lot of things. Well, from a medical standpoint, constipation generally means fewer than three bowel movements a week. And chronic constipation may mean infrequent bowel movements for several weeks. Here to talk about constipation and when it becomes a serious problem is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Jean Fox. Dr. Fox, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So is this something that you spend a lot of your day talking to patients about, or how often do you does a patient come to you with problems of constipation? I'd say I speak to patients about constipation several times a day. And how do you get to be a constipation doctor or want to be a constipation doctor? <laughs> well, constipation is one of the major complaints that patients have, actually. So I don't think anybody sets out wanting to be a constipation doctor, but that's one of the things that tends to bother people Quite just, a bit. Just and like if you're, quality of life. if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you see back pain because lots exactly. of people have back pain. Exactly. Constipation is similar in the field of gastroenterology. That's true. So who's more likely to have this problem? Uh, knowing uh, what you know and uh, seeing as many patients as you've seen, 
who's who's at risk? Who's likely to have it? Well, so patients, um, male or female, can have constipation. Older folks, people who are more immobile, people who are on various different medications mm. might be more likely to have constipation. People who have dietary constraints or poor diet. So age, obviously, is a risk factor. Inactivity. Yes. You mentioned medications. Which medications in particular uh, do you see causing this problem? Thanks for asking. So the, the two major medications that I would think of as causing problems with constipation are opioid pain medications, which might be prescribed for various different reasons. Demerol, morphine, narcotic medications. Yes, narcotic pain medications. Uh, antihypertensives, particularly calcium channel blockers, can cause problems with constipation. Calcium channel blockers, that's a particular type, type of, of antihypertensive. What yes. might be some of the, the brand names of those? Um, verapamil. That's probably the most common, huh? Yeah. When it comes to uh, a patient who wants to come and see you, and is the main thing that they just say is that I just can't have a bowel movement? Or what are some of the other complaints that they have? Well, so, um, so people might complain of infrequent bowel movements or the need to strain excessively or um, a sense of incomplete evacuation that they are not able to finish their bowel movement or um, that they they have abdominal pain or bloating or cramping or sometimes patients might actually come and complain of upper GI symptoms of nausea and then it's not until you actually start getting the details of what what's mm -hmm. going on that you discern that in actuality they're not moving their bowels frequently enough and that's probably why they're nauseated. I think we mentioned that the medical definition, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that less than three bowel movements a week uh, constitutes is is basically the definition of constipation. Correct. Yes, less than three bowel movements a week, but also the the people might might be going every day, but they might feel that they're not completely evacuating or that they have to strain excessively. So so there are other factors that might play into it. Somebody might say, in fact, I saw somebody last week who came in with a complaint of nausea, and she was moving her bowels every day, but then when you got to talking to her, her stools were very hard, and she was not getting the sense that she was completely emptying. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, we had someone in talking about uh a mother who was giving mineral oil to her child for constipation, and she did it because her mother had done it. And during the course of that conversation, I learned that um, sometimes this is a whole family, you know, thinking about what a bowel movement should be like and that you, you have to be going every day. Right. And so I wonder how much that plays into patients that come to see you. Uh, they must be surprised when you tell them, well, technically you don't have to go every day. Right, and and that that does um, sometimes happen. There are some people who become, because it's just the way they've been brought up, they become very fixated on the notion of having a bowel movement every day. And really, as long as you are moving your bowels three times a week and feeling that you're completely evacuating, that's fine. That's within the realm of normal. Anywhere from three bowel movements a day to three bowel movements a week is considered the normal range. When someone comes in, a typical uh, patient with constipation, less than three bowel movements a week or some of the other complaints that you've mentioned, what tests do you normally do uh, in addition to counseling them about the constipation? 
So in general, everybody has a physical exam, including an abdominal exam and a rectal exam. And then um, generally we would do some very basic laboratory tests, check their thyroid to make, that there's, make sure there's not a problem with thyroid function, um, maybe a serum calcium level to be sure that there's not a metabolic problem contributing, and um, perhaps a blood count. All right, let's assume for a minute that all that turns out to be normal. What do you tell these patients? So if somebody's having infrequent stools, we would counsel them first by reviewing the diet and making sure that they are, in fact, um, eating breakfast because that is one of the more important meals of the day for somebody who's constipated. Oh, really? In that, yes, in that just as we have a normal circadian rhythm that controls our sleep, there's a normal biorhythm to how your colon contracts, and your colon is actually at its most contractile in the early part of the day in the morning, and eating breakfast accentuates that, so we make sure if patients are struggling with constipation, they always eat a breakfast meal. Well, there um, you go. You've learned that. That's that is key. A, well, and that's a really breakfast. simple fix for yeah. people. It's a very simple thing to do. Eating a meal stimulates the colon to contract, and so if somebody's skipping meals, their colon is going to be less contractile, and the breakfast meal is very important. So I counsel them to be sure to eat three meals a day and not to skip breakfast, and then from there, we would add something simple, like if that's not enough, we might start with adding a um, fiber supplement and um, maybe, if, if necessary, a laxative, an osmotic laxative would be one of the first things that you could add, something like milk of magnesia or magnesium oxide or... Um, something that you can get over the counter. Yes. Those are your two favorites? Or, yes, milk of magnesia or Miralax or um, magnesium oxide. Well, where do prunes fit into this? To so me, it's prune, always prune juice. That's prune it. Juice All you have to do is drink some morning. of that. Prunes are an osmotic laxative, and they would fall into pretty much the same category as milk of magnesia. And some people do find that a small amount of prune juice in the morning can help keep them regular, and that's an old remedy, and that's just fine. Has our uh, diet in general, the American diet, led people to experience constipation more often? Well, there's a lot of um, processed foods and fast foods in our diet, and so, yes, you know, the whole idea of a fiber supplement, it would be great, and for some people it's enough to just add dietary fiber such as fresh fruits and vegetables and salads and that's the ideal situation but people don't always do that or it may not always be palatable uh, to them and so sometimes a fiber supplement would be necessary. And you used one of those big doctor words, osmotic laxative. I presume that's one that uh, sucks fluid into the Pulls colon. makes the fluid into the colon, All right, yes. makes the stool a little softer. Yes. All right. Dr. Jane Fox, expert on constipation, gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 